Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Today is March the 4th in 2023, and my guest is Alex Tabarok. Alex is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a research fellow with the Mercado Center. Alex is one of the world's best teachers of economics, with a very large spread as the co-founder of Marginal Revolution University, the popular Marginal Revolution blog, together with Tyler Cohn. I've learned a lot from Alex over the years, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, Alex. Oh, thanks, Nicholas. Great to be here. Today, I want to talk a bit about some principles of economics that explain a lot including the Baumol effect and how it explains why the prices are so damn high, especially right now. Especially, um, it seems like even more so, right? <laughs> and then use this as a segue to talk about your work on institutions such as private cities and lessons for entrepreneurs, how to unleash innovation. If we get to it, I'd also love to hear about dominant assurance contracts and how we can implement them in startup jurisdictions. Alex, to start with, um, a quote from John Maynard Keynes. Practical men believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economists. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler a few years back. My question is, does economics do more good than harm? And how do we know? <laughs> yeah. Well, good economics does more good than harm. Um... You know, uh, consistent with the, the Keynes quote, you know, Paul Samuelson uh, once said, I don't uh, care who writes the nation's laws so long as I get to write the nation's textbooks. And uh, uh, the job of Tyler uh, and I is to remove Samuelson okay, from uh, the leading textbooks and replace it with uh, our book, Modern Principles. Um, and we're trying to do that with the textbook, with Marjorie Revolution, with Marjorie Revolution University teach good economic principles all around the world. Great. What are your top three, and you can do five if you want, um, economic insights or principles? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I guess one of the ones you, you alluded to at the beginning was sort of the cause of inflation, right? Uh, this is a topic which comes up again and again and again. And I think Milton Friedman basically uh, had it uh, correct which was that inflation always and everywhere is a monetary uh, phenomenon. We have to look to inflation in the stock of money to explain inflation in the stock of prices. Now, uh, it can be complicated because not all monetary phenomena are inflationary, right? And uh, uh, especially, you know, when you have low inflation, you know, there are other things which can matter as well, supply shocks, things like that. But it's a really important principle to understand that if your country is undergoing, you know, inflation rates of, you know, 10% per year, let alone 100% per year or 1,000 or 10,000, which is not impossible by any means whatsoever, uh, you have to look to the central bank. It's their fault. They're printing too much money. That is the answer uh, to that. So that's number one, what is the cause of inflation? Um, I guess the, 
you know, kind of another classic answer would be, you know, trade-offs, right? Um, which means you just can't have everything. And uh, like one of the one of the things I've talked a lot about in my work, um, but also in the in the, sort of the textbook as an example of this, is do we want uh, our drugs, you know, to be perfectly safe? And at first you think, well, of course, who who wouldn't want safe drugs, right? But there's a cost to that. There's a cost to making the drug safer, and that is that the the trials, the clinical trials, then have to be bigger. They have to be longer. You know, if you want to find every possible uh, side effect, then you need huge, expensive clinical trials to do that. And that means you're going to get fewer new drugs. And if you have fewer new drugs, then more people are going to die. So actually, more safety can kill people, right? And that's a, a lesson which I think is hard for people to, to really grasp. You know, I say that when the FDA, you know, fails to uh, when they approve a bad drug, you know, and there are problems, everybody knows about it, right? And you, and heads roll at the FDA, and people die, and and that's known, and it's in the newspapers. But when the FDA fails to approve a good drug, when they take a long time to approve a good drug, or when they raise costs so much that the good drug is never even researched and developed, so it doesn't even exist, well, the people who would have lived had that drug been available, they, they die, but they are buried in an invisible graveyard. And I say, you know, economists, we're used to kind of seeing the invisible hand. Uh, so economists are pretty good at seeing the invisible graveyard and kind of point that out to people. So this is a application of the uh, of trade-offs. Uh, those are two good ones. I don't know. I suppose I could come up with more, but that two, two, two is pretty good. Yeah, I love those principles. It's also a bit sort of the seen and the unseen, right? When it comes right, to the graveyard and the FDA, that's a powerful concept, right? So there's things that you see happen if you go a certain course, a certain policy, but you don't see what doesn't happen if you had taken another course. Exactly. We see that with international trade is another classic example of that, right? So when you have more uh, trade, the competitors, the domestic competitors to the imports, you know, they lose business and people see that they, they lose their jobs and, you know, factories close and things like that. But what you don't see is the exporters uh, who may be in other parts of the country. Um, but because other countries are selling us more goods, they're also buying more from us. They actually want more of our goods and services. So you generate a lot more exports. When you import more, you also export more. And that's, again, something which exactly, as you said, is is hard to see. Yeah, yeah. I would have started my number one with non-zero-sum exchange. Ah, yes. For economists, that's just so clear after you've yes. learned it. But for non-economists, that's sometimes like, right? So when two people trade, they don't trade if they don't get more utility from the trade that they had before. So that overall increases utility if they trade, right? Yeah, no, so, absolutely. Yeah, so, so that's... The importance of growth uh, as, a, as another sort of version of that, which I think people don't really conceptualize that well, right? So, you know, if you're growing at 2% per year, you know, you're, you're doubling every 35 years. Uh, if you're going at 1%, you're only doubling every 70 years. So that, that's a huge difference over time. So this focusing on growth, positive sum games, making a bigger pie, you know, a lot of people are focused on splitting the pie up and economists tend to focus more on growing the pie which is the only way that everyone could become rich. Yeah, yeah. 
The other ones would have been like comparative advantage and opportunity costs, but that's also kind of a part of trade-offs, right? It's just sure, like taking sure. it a bit further, right? So if, yeah, yeah. if you specialize on one thing that you're relatively better at than someone else, even if you're better in everything than someone else, they can still do valuable work by doing something that you're relatively worse at than the other thing. It's, again, once you learn it, it's just so clear and you understand so much more about the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and that marginal utility, that's a bit more complex, but also very important. Dynamic equilibrium, creative destruction would be my, would be one of my favorites. Yeah, you, you got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned a lot from you. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to later go a bit about the creative destruction part, because that's kind mm -hmm. of a bit of core to my thinking and probably also my biases. Yeah. Which is why I want to put some challenges to your Baumol paper later. Sure. But, but one question before, why is it that economics is so unintuitive to people uh, in a way that people are not like agnostic as to what they believe? They have very strong confidence in false beliefs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good question. And uh, I, I think you got at it earlier when you mentioned, you know, these positive sum games um, and talking about economic growth, because those things are actually uh, very recent right? Uh, through most of uh, humanity's history, we're living in small tribes um, and we're living close to Malthusian uh, situations when, yeah, actually kind of uh, most games are uh, zero sum, right? Uh, some people, how do you get rich, you know, in a situation like, well, you steal, right? Uh, be, either you become, you know, a great man and you you know, Alexander the Great or whatever, and you invade armies and gather land and slaves and you steal resources. Um, that was most of, you know, uh, human history, right? Is the only way you could get rich was really through mass theft, war and theft and, and, and so forth. Um, and that's also true about the, the small tribe. Of course, there are some positive games in, within a small tribe as well, but there's not a lot of room for growth. People lived in the same uh evolutionary stable equilibrium for thousands of generations with basically nothing happening right you know no improvement in welfare and no improvement or really no change in technology only with the coming of the industrial revolution do we really see this discontinuous change the hockey stick of economic growth and so uh the principles which give rise to the industrial revolution, you know, focusing on growth and positive sum and technology. These are not natural uh, to us. And I think the idea of trading with strangers, again, globalization, uh, although people have always done it, um, again, we have this from our tribal heritage, the fear of strangers, right? And uh, the other and... Um, that the strangers bring disease and they're not to be trusted. And, you know, so the idea that we are trading with people all over the world, again, is a very foreign uh, concept. You know, there's Dunbar's number, right? Just, we can handle about 200 uh, in our sort of a, a group in our heads. Um, and yet in the modern world, we have to cooperate with millions of people. Uh, again, you mentioned specialization, right? So in previous errors, there really was no such thing as specialization, not as we would understand it today. Everybody in the tribe pretty much had to be able to do any of the jobs in the tribe. Maybe they're not as good at it as, you know, somebody, but, you know, and so forth. But 
in a modern era, we have specialists in the ear, we have specialists in the nose, eye specialists, optometrists, right? So podiatrists is a specialist in the foot. Oh my God, <laughs> right? So I have a foot problem. I go to the guy who specializes in treating feet. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? Um, so the amount of specialization, which has occurred, and how can you specialize? Well, how can a guy who only treats feet, how can he survive? Well, he has to trade for almost everything, right? You know, almost everything. The podiatrist doesn't know how to make any of the food or the goods or the services which he consumes. And yet a podiatrist, of course, is able to live a very good uh, lifestyle, but only because they trade with millions of other people. But that's very strange. You know, that's very strange to, to think that someone would make their living by having this extreme knowledge of the foot. <laughs> what, a, what a strange thing. <laughs> so I think the answer to your question is that the we we have what Hayek uh, always use this term, which I like the atavistic, these atavistic preferences, these preferences and beliefs which were appropriate for this evolutionary stable equilibria, but which really don't fit with the uh, modern industrial revolution. Yeah, and now what, what always fascinates me is when I uh, I think I read somewhere about Smith could be wrong about that that he saw, he was the first one to saw kind of things like division of labor and had sort of the cornerstones of the equilibrium in his thinking and of how it could all work together and sort of the invisible hands. But he was thinking or looking at sort of a more agrarian economy it was a nascent industrial revolution. And he thought getting this right, getting free trade, relatively free markets and limited government would lead to like a three to four X growth, right? So right, even Adam right. Smith underestimated the effect of compounding growth, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, at the time Smith wrote, you know, 1776 was the publication of The Wealth of Nations. Um, even the most advanced thinkers could not predict the Industrial Revolution. It was beginning, you kind of saw, you know, but to understand what was coming, you know, the railroad and the telegraph and all that kind of stuff, it really took you know, until the science fiction uh, authors, I think until Julius Verne, uh, people like that, um, to really begin to understand what was going on around them. Oddly enough, I think we're living in a uh, similar time today with the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. I don't think anyone today can actually predict what's going to happen in the future. The, the, the span of uncertainty has actually just grown so much, but I think we are in the, an industrial revolution of uh, thinking. Yeah, true. So, um, and we got it through that process of um, positive sum exchange and relatively um, free markets and trade, right? So these are kind of the key ingredients to unleash kind of entrepreneurship. So why is it that we see all these advances in technology and in artificial intelligence and in the world of bits and computers? But why are housing prices rising? Why is education getting so expensive without really getting better? And what explains that prices get, get so high? And just, just these sectors that seem to be stagnating versus others that seem to be progressing so rapidly. What explains that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two sort of uh, issues uh, here is one, why do some sectors advance in productivity? Uh, more quickly uh, than others. 
And part of that is sort of, uh, you know, randomness. Um, you get a breakthrough in one area and that leads to a, a rapid increase. So we get a breakthrough uh, with the steam engine and uh, that the idea that that is possible then leads to a rapid set of advances or the Wright brothers, right? They should, oh, flight is possible. And then you get this rapid set of, set of advances. So you go from the Wright brothers in, I don't know, 1912, 1911, something like that. I can't remember, I even remember something like that. And, uh, you know, by the 1940s, 1950s, uh, we have jets, right? Uh, and then by the, you know, 1970s, 1969, where we're on the moon. Um, so you, you, you have these breakthroughs and there's a rapid set of advances, which then, you know, sort of peter out, right? So we haven't made a number of huge advances in aircraft, uh, since, you know, the jet. Um, so part of that and, and like housing, we haven't seen huge productivity advances and there may also be regu regulatory problems and in housing, especially, okay. The big issue there is not building the house, it's the land. And so the big issue has become, we have just stopped um, allowing uh, people to build. Uh, you know, San Francisco, prices are sky high, but the apartment buildings are not sky high. You know, usually when the price of land goes up, the height of buildings goes up, right? Uh, but that has not happened. Um, we're, it's almost impossible to build things in, you know, the San Francisco uh, Bay uh, area. You know, I was talking with my uh, son, Maxwell Tabarrok, who's also interested in these issues. And he was pointing out, we used to do a lot of land reclamation, right? So something like, you know, 50% of Boston today, you know, didn't exist a hundred years ago. You know, it's been reclaimed from the ocean and, and, and so forth. But we don't do that anymore, right? Land reclamation, like actually building more land. That was a thing which we used to do, you know? Um, Chicago, you know, there's the Chicago River and, you know, in the 1900s, they actually reversed the direction of the river. <laughs> okay, right? So it's like unbelievable, right? And uh, we just don't do that. Imagine trying to, you know, reverse the direction of a river today. It, it would be, you know, uproar. It, it wouldn't happen, right? So there are all these. So, so, so some of it is uh, random. Some of it is regulation that we have imposed upon ourselves. And then there's the third category, um, which gets into the Bommel effect. And that is that in some areas, for, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, it's just really, really, really hard to increase productivity in those areas. And often this involves things with uh, a lot of labor, uh, human to human uh, kind of uh, a labor. Like a classic example, you know, from Bommel, maybe we'll come back to this is, you know, the, the concerto, right? You know, requires four people, you know, quartet, and it requires them, you know, 40 minutes to play this piece. And it required 40 minutes when the piece was written in 1820. And it requires four people 40 minutes to produce the same piece, you know, today uh, in uh, 2023. Um, services, right? Like to give someone a massage, right? You could have gotten a great massage in Rome, in Roman era, you know, Rome, right? You know, uh, 1 BC. Uh, if you wanted a massage, you could have had a fantastic massage in the Roman baths. Uh, it's no better today, right? And it's no more, you, you can't get a good massage in less time, right? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's, no, there's been no 
productivity improvement in massages, you know, maybe you can go to those chairs you see in the airport, right? <laughs> uh, which really are not as good, right? They're just not as good, but you put your quarters in. Um, but they're, they're frankly not as good as having another human being give you a, a massage. So no improvement in the productivity of massages in over 2,000 years, right? That's, that's kind of crazy, right? Um, so there are goods like that, often involving services, where the productivity doesn't improve. And because of that, it's inevitable that the relative price of those services uh, goes up. And we can talk more about that, but that's the essence of it. Sure. So why do the relative prices go up? Okay. So um, think about the, uh, the masseuse, okay, in, 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 in Rome in you know, 1 BC, right? Um, what else is the masseuse going to do? Like they, they, they don't have a, uh, the opportunity cost is actually quite low. Wages are very low, right? So the masseuse can go be, uh, you know, subsistence farmer or, you know, they can do something else of low productivity, right? So it's cheap. It's cheap to get a massage, okay? Because to get the massage, you have to pull labor from other sectors of the economy, right? But if those other sectors aren't very productive, then to pull labor into the massage sector is quite easy. It's cheap because you're, you, there's lots of labor available. They're not being paid a lot. Now think about today. Um, if we want to have a uh, massage, a uh, Swedish massage or something like that, we got to pull somebody from manufacturing, uh, from teaching, from education, you know, from all these other sectors where they're paid quite a bit. Okay, so it is much more expensive. The relative price of massage has gone up, which is a reflection of the fact that. Productivity in other sectors has gone way up. So if we want more massages today, we have to give up a lot more, right? In Roman era BC, 1 BC, you're not giving up a lot by getting more massages because those people were just basically producing enough to feed themselves. So you're not, you don't have to give up a lot. But to get a massage today, you have to pull somebody pretty educated, pretty uh, uh, capable. You got to pull them from the manufacturing sector. You have to pull them from another sector of the economy where they're capable of producing a lot. And so the relative price has gone up because to get a massage, we now must give up much, much more other goods. And what relative prices do is they represent that trade-off. So the price is just a, a, a number. It's just a figure which represents how much other goods must we give up to get this good. And so we have to give up a lot of other goods to get a massage. So the more productive the other sectors become, the higher the price of the low productivity sectors uh, is. So this is, this is sometimes people, a lot of people make this mistake. They think that, okay, we want to explain like, why is it so expensive healthcare? Why is education so expensive? Why are massages so expensive? Why is it so much more expensive to repair goods? than it used to be, okay? And they think, okay, well, we have to find something. There must be something wrong with these sectors. There must be something wrong with the healthcare sector. There's plenty wrong, but there must be something wrong with the healthcare sector or the education sector or the, the repair sector. What's wrong with the repair sector that has made prices go up so much? And what I'm pointing out, which is due to Bommel, is no. Actually, 
the answer to why the prices in these sectors is so high is not something wrong with that sector. It's something right with all the other sectors. So you have to look outside the sector. So if you want to understand why repair has become like repairing shoes to service good, why has that become so much more expensive? It's because the person doing the repair could be doing these other much more productive things. Um, and so it's the success of all the other sectors, the productive sectors, which drives up the price in the uh, service sectors, in the low productivity service sectors. And again, the price is just a representation of the fact that we have to give up a lot of goods because we've gotten really productive at these people in these other sectors. They can produce a lot. We've got to give up a lot of, you know, chairs and CDs and books and, you know, all, all these cars and all that stuff we're really good at, televisions. We've got to give up a lot of that stuff, which is good stuff. We've got to get a lot of that, give up a lot of that to get more massages and healthcare and education and so forth. So the better we are at other stuff, the more expensive the low productivity stuff becomes. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Bamal effect is a very, very good and fundamental truth about the world. Um, and it leads to this counterintuitive insights that, hey, if technology advances, it also improves the wages. It doesn't put people out of labor. It actually improves the wages of people in lower productivity sectors where technology can't raise the productivity that much, like a string quartet, or music or culture. So that's a good thing, right? So that yes. kind of distributes some of the gains from technology as yes. opposed to, oh, AI is going to put people out of work and lower their salaries, right? Right, right. Absolutely. So you think about barbers. Uh, again, uh, you could have a great haircut, you know, in, in Roman era, you know, uh, 1 BC, or I, I often say, always get a haircut in a poor country, right? So when I go to India, I always get a haircut because I can get a haircut in India for like a dollar. Um, and it's just as good. In fact, I get a head massage. They give you a head massage as well. So um, you get a, a better haircut for a dollar in India than you do for $20 in the United States. Well, why is that? Well, it's actually the difference is, is because the worker in India, the barber in India, doesn't have a lot of other good opportunities. So to get more barbers in India, you're, again, pulling them from, you know, low productivity farming, from low productivity uh, manufacturing and so forth. While in the United States, to get a barber, you have to pull them from a high productivity manufacturing or high productivity food production and, and so forth. So the barber in the United States earns a lot more, not because they're a better barber than the one in India, because everybody else is better. Because as you just said, the barber in the United States gets the advantage of everyone else being high productivity in the United States because of the technology, because of the education, the human capital, the institutions. So all of those uh, beneficial factors of the United States, they flow to the barber, even though the barber himself is not doing anything, you know, <laughs> better than the one in India. Yeah. But at the same time, as you mentioned before, it doesn't mean like all is good, that sure. that's inevitable and that education shouldn't be that much or healthcare. That's also not the case, right? It's not that the bummer effect is, it's just analytical truth about the world, right? So that's kind of my challenge that I would put forward 
you're kind of saying, oh, things like regulation or unions or whatever, they don't explain this big effect. And I think that's correct. But the Bumble effect is an analytical truth, right? So it's comparable to like accounting, right? You're saying what goes in here has to go, has to make way here. Yes. But it doesn't explain the different line items and why they're there and how you can cut costs, right? And right. to me, it seems at the same time, it could still be true that there is something wrong in these sectors, right? Oh, sure. So, so there's a couple of points to be made there. And that is that, uh, one, the Bommel effect explains these long run uh, uh, differences. So the price of education has been going up for over 100 years. Price of medical care, well over 100 years. You know, people in 1900 were complaining about how much more expensive it was to, you know, go see the doctor than they used to. Right. Um, so the Bommel effect explains that change in relative prices over the over this long run. Oh, or similarly, it, it, essentially, it's the same idea explaining why uh, uh, barbers in uh, the United States earn more than barbers in India. OK, this big relative price. Now, lots of things, of course, are wrong with the healthcare sector uh, and with the education sector. So it's easy to also point to regulatory problems. But I don't think those regulatory problems, they don't explain this. They're, they're problems. We have to fix them. But they don't explain this long run, this very big macro uh, effect. Because after all, healthcare has been regulated in all kinds of different ways over the last hundred years. And this sort of uh, increase in the relative price of healthcare happens year after year after year after year. It's a very long run, slow, but long run uh, uh, process. And it also doesn't explain, like, you know, again, why. Uh, education is so much cheaper in India, again, than in the United States. So this Bommel effect explains these long-run things. Um, but that doesn't mean that, A, we would like to improve the productivity, if we could, of services. That would be fantastic. Maybe robots will start to do that. Um, and it also doesn't say that there aren't any problems to be fixed. I would say, however, you know, people are a little bit too quick to assume that the that this problem um, is, so if you want to say that the problem, the reason why prices in healthcare are, have been going up in a relative way, if you want to say that's due to regulation, then you have to say that regulation is growing in healthcare more than it's growing in other fields. And I'm not even sure that that is true, right? So if you'd looked at like regulation, go talk to somebody in the auto industry, where productivity has improved tremendously. And you ask them, has regulation gone up in your industry? And they go, oh my God, yes. It used to be so much easier to make a car. Now there are all these safety problems. And, you know, we have to design the car to these specifications and we can't do this in the engine and the environment. And we have all these environmental regulations. And they would tell you uh, there's been a huge amount of regulation of automobiles. So it's not even obvious, although there's lots of regulation of healthcare, and there are problems. It's not even obvious that it's so much more than in sectors where the productivity has been going way up. Yeah, let me challenge it a bit further because I do think that um, I, I saw some problems when I read the paper um, that contradict some of my, maybe I have a bias there. So first to state my two biases, one, I'm generally a bit more skeptical about macro, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not, it's because I worked in measurement, right? And in data analytics. So I did hundreds of data collection projects with public and private sector, academia, everything. 
And I think few people realize how bad the data is that we often work with, even the one that is extremely widely used by everyone, right, right. how many limitations and caveats there are and how easy it is to misinterpret. Mm. But even the most basic things, um, even sometimes the biggest experts get wrong, right? Especially when it comes to techniques of measuring certain numbers, I think even academics um, have are not trained in, oh, what's the difference if we ask the question this way or that way? Right, they're very well trained in putting analytical models um, using that data, right? So that's why I'm very skeptical of macro in general, because very few people pay attention to sort of the garbage in, garbage out problem. Yeah. Right. This is why I'm also when you say, oh, we would need to see this growth in regulation to explain this macro phenomenon. I'm a bit like, hmm, is regulation like a linear phenomenon? Right. right. Because you, you, know, you can have tons of regulations that are fine or don't do a lot of damage. But then you can have one that can have like this outsized impact, right? Or, and the other bias is I work in technology. So it seems to me from my vantage point that, you know, technology is massively outpacing the rest of the economy. Um, it's almost a miracle without it, you know, I think we wouldn't make much growth or progress even, right? So yes. I always have this difference to the new startups and how quick and agile and fast they are and how sort of capable these entrepreneurs are versus kind of the rest of the economy, big firms with a lot of bloat and bureaucracy. So to me, kind of the creative destruction explanation kind of makes a lot of sense, right? So if there's an open process, a lot of creative destruction can take place. And the entrepreneurs that I work with every day, they can fix things, right? When there's regulation in place, they can fix things. And you can pretty systematically look at like healthcare. All right. So you need to invest like 10 years and bring invest hundreds of millions to bring a drug to the market. That sort of systematically sort of forces you into a compliance mindset, right? You kind of need to start with lawyers. You need to start with people that can do the regulatory strategy with 20 years of experience that automatically sorts out the renegades and the misfits, the ones who come with ideas, how to really deeply and fundamentally change things more. Right. So I do think there is a much bigger role for the regulatory sides than, than your paper is suggesting. And some of it much like my own work is suggesting on the FDA and other things. Sure. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. It's hard to disagree with that. Um, yeah, I think it is true that you see these big jumps um, in productivity often in new fields where the government is just so behind that, you know, they haven't caught up. So like Uber you know, just jumped ahead because uh, it took the government uh, a long time to figure out, you know, how to regulate them. Um, and the whole Silicon Valley and changes in software and uh, crypto, all of these things, uh, the government takes time, it's slow, it's coming behind. And so that gives the entrepreneurs a time to jump ahead. Um, yeah, and look, the healthcare sector is so screwed up that, uh, you know, Every theory about why it's screwed up is true because it's screwed up in every possible, every possible way. Um, and so what I would say is that it's the Bommel effect just explains this very long run um, uh, change in relative prices so that we could fix everything in the healthcare system and make it, you know, super innovative and so forth. And I think that would be fantastic. I want to do that. Um, I think what would happen is we would lower the price. Okay, which would be great. We create a whole bunch of advances, increases in life expectancy, all that kind of good stuff, right? But then 
I think the trend would start, you know, continue in the same direction until we solve this fundamental problem of how to increase, you know, productivity in this high service sector, which again, it's not impossible. Um, you know, robots, uh, it, you know, might be one way it would do it, doing Especially it. Especially in education, uh, right? Yeah, it's education, so online of- education, right? As is something I've talked a lot about. Uh, one teacher used to be able to reach, you know, 30 students uh, at a time. And now they can easily reach, you know, 3,000, 300,000 students at a time. So that is a way in which we can increase the productivity of uh, education. So, yeah, I, I, I want to kind of box where the Bommel uh, uh, effect explains um, uh, and right. not but, disagree but with like, you. But the two explanations kind, kind of can go together. I don't need yeah. to like quit my work and say everything no. I said <laughs> to my audience is wrong. You know, these regulations don't do anything. It's fine. It's just the Bommel effect. Let's continue work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I feel reassured now. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are many problems to work on. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But still, just to ponder quickly on that point, because, you know, that's just one data point that I think is important just to understand the general trend, because it seems to me that it's not getting better when it comes to regulations, right? Instead, you know, there's piling, regulations are just piling on top of each other. And it's not this necessarily linear phenomenon. For a time, you might might even get better. But over mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. it seems to me getting worse, right? And there was this one measure uh, on regulation that you put in that uses kind of a more brute force linear approach. So how often is our like specific restrictions included, like must or um, is required to? And that seems to me kind of a bit missing the point, right? Because, you know, I don't think you're going to catch like the big NEPA regulations or like specific FDA regulations that require efficacy trials. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. So it, so the paper you're talking about is one where you know, we use this measure of regulation from, uh, based on reg data. Um, and it sort of counts the number of regulatory words, you know, in the, uh, uh, in the corpus of federal, uh, regulation. Um, and yeah, so it could be, you're right, that that might not get at everything if there are uh, some, a few particular laws which are especially bad, right? Um, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, that itself, though, I think is also a, if that is the correct, if that is true, that's a good finding of the paper, right? Because that's not what people thought before, right? So, um, you know, we find that this, the number of words, you know, is maybe if that's not the right measure of regulation, then, you know, we need to go back and try and find out what it is. Because if it is just a few of these laws, which have these very, very big effects, well, that is very positive, right? Uh, that just means we just need to fix a few things, you know, NEPA uh, uh, and a few things like that, maybe some zoning or something of, of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so that's also an important thing to learn. Yep. So it's testable. And- Let's try and find out if that's true or not. Yeah, yeah. Good. So um, that's uh, that's very reassuring to me. But in in any case, so uh, when I prepared for this podcast, I noted there's this one book that sounds really amazing, and that to my shame I haven't read yet, even though it's very topical for what I'm wanting to do. Can you talk a bit about your book on for entrepreneurial economics? Right? Oh, yeah. Especially, I'm interested. <laughs> you have you have something that you can share with listeners that they can use in their work. Right. So that book, Neural Economics. Uh, Bright Ideas from the Dismal Science. Um, That was a collection 
of what I thought were super clever um, papers uh, using economics in unusual ways to uh, suggest these changes in social institutions, which can improve things. So that book came out a number of years ago, but I like one of them uh, was, you know, Robin Hance's idea of prediction markets. Uh, so I was one of the first people to, to uh, say, hey, this is yeah. great. <laughs> you know, let's, support, let's push this. Let's push prediction markets. Another one, which is in the paper, is uh, Michael Creamer's uh, idea. He's since won the Nobel Prize. I'm very happy about that. I, have to, I got a chance to work with him uh, in the COVID years. So I'm very pleased about that. But um, the paper, which is in Entrepreneurial Economics, was his paper on what are called patent buyouts. And this was sort of an early prize-like advanced market commitment uh, paper. And the, the basic idea was we know that there's an argument for patents um, uh, when you know the innovation costs are really high and imitation costs are low. So the first pill costs a billion dollars, the second pill costs 50 cents, right? And once you know the formula, then anyone could come in and, you know, start producing the 50 cent pill. And then what happens to the guy who spent the billion dollars to produce the formula? Well, he goes out of business. And if that happens, you don't get the drug in the first place. So that's the argument for patents. The problem is, is that, well, then you're selling the, the drug at a very high price. The cost is really low. So there's a, a deadweight loss because people could, people are willing to pay more than the cost, but they're not able or willing to pay more than the price. So that's a loss, a social loss. So Michael Creamer's idea was that we ought to have these patent buyouts so that the government or maybe a big nonprofit would buy the patent from the owner of the patent and would then throw it open, would then open it up to, uh, so that anyone could uh, compete. And the advantage of this is that since the patent holder gets paid, they still have all the same incentives to innovate and research and develop the drug. But now we get competition coming in and the drug is priced you know, in marginal law cost. So often when we're talking about the high prices of pharmaceuticals, you know, people say, well, we ought to have price controls like they do in Canada or Europe. Um, but that, that introduces this trade-off, right? Is that if we, which I think is a terrible trade-off, is that if we don't allow the pharmaceutical companies to recoup a big portion of the R&D, then we're going to get fewer new drugs in the future. And these new drugs are incredibly valuable. They're much more valuable than their price. Uh, they are, it's a really good deal. Pharmaceuticals, uh, uh, the social return to them is very high. But under Kramer's uh, idea, Michael Kramer's idea, um, we don't face this trade-off because we still get innovation. In fact, we could, uh, we could you know, pay extra you know, and then increase innovation even more, but we get the benefits of marginal cost uh, pricing. So that was another idea which I sort of uh, promoted in, in entrepreneurial economics. I definitely got to read that. I do find as an entrepreneur that is really useful to use some of these economics, right? When it comes to auctions, for example, I have a good friend who has a company that's entirely based around that idea and how it can more accurately price certain things if you experiment it as an auction with you have to bid or prediction markets, I think are a very good tool, even though we haven't yet figured out how to use it at a broader scale. 
later would like to talk a bit more about dominance insurance contracts. Insurance general is a very economics heavy area. Did you write anything about insurance in general? In that book? Uh, let's see. I, I, th can't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's anything in insurance, but I agree with you. Insurance is a very useful idea. Uh, you know, it was insurance, which, uh, allowed people to, you know, take the voyages of, you know, Vasco da Gama and all that kind of stuff. Uh, East India company to uh, go to India, pluses and minuses, but whatever. Um, because each of these trips was incredibly risky. Um, and so if you would just send one ship, you know, that you might lose everything. You might come back super rich, but you might lose everything. So it, the, the voyages of discovery were, uh, as much or partially a result of innovations in finance than they were about, you know, uh, figuring out that the world was round. Uh, we also had to figure out how can we insure these things. And the joint stock company, East India Company, was a joint stock company, one of the very first joint stock companies. So the innovations in finance, in economics, in insurance, uh, in corporations, these were also very important. Um, to generate these uh, these you know, voyages of discovery. But if we want to go to the moon, if we want to go to Mars, we also need to think about innovative uh, funding mechanisms. So like crowdfunding and all of these new ideas which are coming out, I think we shouldn't overlook the uh, uh, innovations in finance as an important precursor for innovations elsewhere in the economy. Oh, absolutely. That's something I could rip on for much longer. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. But insurance is also this just very regulated industry. I don't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yet know that much about it, to be honest, but I have this nagging feeling that it's one of the most low hanging fruits. But, um, you know, it's pricing and risk, right? But there's all these barriers, like Roman Hansen said on the podcast that insurance wasn't allowed by the Commodities and Futures Exchange Commission until like the, you know, early 20th century or something because it was considered, was considered gambling. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this, and in fact, uh, there's, it was also a marketing change uh, because when we talk about life insurance, actually, obviously, it's not life insurance, it's death insurance, right? But it never sold under death insurance, right? <laughs> People don't even want to think about, you know, this is, because that's what you're insuring, you know, you get money when you die, right? Um, but it didn't sell very well under death insurance. Only when you change the terminology to life insurance and you, oh, I'm, I'm insuring the people who, uh, my loved ones, you know, then, then it began to uh, take off. So there was a marketing change there as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. So can you talk a bit about your work on voluntary or private cities? Cause that's something that my audience cares a lot about. I'm based in one in Prospera. We had people on from the Qatar World Digital Economic Zone that you're an advisor to. Yes. So you've been influential in that space. I'm especially curious what has, why are they important? What is their track record so far? And what is their potential? So I guess the big picture that I would say is that we need more experiments in governance. Okay. So, um, you know, we have these big nation states and A, it's hard to experiment with new nation states and it can be, you know, painful. You have revolutions, right? Nobody really wants to go through that. 
you know, too much experimentation in these big things is uh, like the French Revolution, people lose their heads, right? So you don't want too much of that. And also you get these monopolies, right? So you have these nation states and they get monopoly powers. And so we, we don't get very much experimentation. So I'm a huge admirer of, of the U.S. Constitution and of the founding fathers, you know, the founding fathers and Madison and Jefferson and so forth, uh, Hamilton. These were great political insights. Uh, these were political economists of the highest uh, order. And they designed a constitution. It's a brilliant uh, document. But look, this is, you know, 250 years old. So it doesn't seem crazy to me to, to think that we ought to be having experiments in governance. So how can we do that somewhere between the micro and the nation state, the macro? And voluntary cities, I think, are probably the, the best uh, alternative, um, uh, the best level that we have. And because a lot goes on in cities, right? Cities are the, really the engines of the economies. Uh, more and more, we are living, you know, urbanization. Uh, we are reaching the peak. We're not there yet, but the world has become much more urbanized. And a huge amount of activity, uh, economic activity, hold under the umbrella of the city. It's small enough so that we can have lots of different experiments without people losing their head, but it's large enough that it, the differences uh, can be huge. And of course, the classic case here is with uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen, right? So this is what Deng Xiaoping said. He said, look, we need some experiments in governance uh, in our communist uh, country. I don't want to you know, risk the whole country. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to have 10 uh, states, 10 cities, and we're going to uh, uh, give them some leeway in uh, choosing the rules. And Shenzhen being next to Hong Kong, uh, so, hey, let's do something a little bit more like Hong Kong. So Shenzhen became a tremendous, tremendous success story. And then you learn from that. So then Shenzhen was scaled, you know, basically to the rest of China, right? So I think a city is a good, uh, a good level at which to have these experiments. Uh, you can experiment with, you know, different types of economic systems, different types of policing, different types of construction and land regulation, taxation systems. All of these are important at the uh, city level, and we need experimentation in uh, all of them. This is. You know, one of the, this is our big hope uh, uh, for, for, for going forward. In fact, I don't know if you saw, but uh, today, actually, it's a little bit, of, I don't know, well, I guess we'll come back to this, but, you know, Trump, <laughs> for his reelection campaign, is um, promoting freedom cities, okay? Is he? And, yeah, it, yeah, it came out uh, today or yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. And so what he wants to do uh, is on federal land, uh, create these new opportunities to build, you know, futuristic uh, new uh, cities. And, you know, there's a huge amount of federal land in the United States. You know, um, uh, west of the Mississippi, it's like 50% in some states, more than 50%, like in, in uh, Nevada, is federally owned land. And it's not parks, okay? It's, you know, don't worry about the parks. We can still have plenty of parks. But there's a huge amount of federal, federally owned land which is not being put to very high productive uses. So this, I think, actually is 
a good idea. I'm not a huge fan of Trump. He did some good things. You know, he did some bad things. But Freedom Cities, I think, is actually a good idea of Trump's. Um, I'm pretty. Oh, uh, I had no idea. He must yeah. have had a good advisor. Maybe you know, maybe he's learned from Prospera and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, or also Native American land, right? So you're an advisor yes. to the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, which has digital digital business domiciles. So if you're working in crypto and Web three, you can use that um, with a more clear set of regulations. So you're kind of um, don't have to be afraid of other federal regulators and what capricious things they might come up with. Yes, ex exactly. So the Native Americans have been, uh, frankly, uh, screwed out of their land for a long time, but they are federally recognized as uh, sovereign countries. Um, maybe not quite as sovereign as a country, but they are recognized as sovereign uh, entities. So there is an opportunity here uh, within the United States to create a relatively free and innovative regulatory system. Still, the U.S. has authority over U.S. citizens, but uh, like a state, the, um, the Indian reservations, these uh, Indian districts can create, as you said, a more innovative and responsive system, particularly for something like um, Web3 crypto. Um, so I'm kind of excited to be part of that. That was another thing which is in the book, actually, not crypto, but uh, competitive federalism. So one of the ways in which the United States has been benefited is that we have not just different regulatory systems uh, through the 50 states, but actually in some areas, competitive systems. So any corporation can choose which state to be regulated under, and then those laws apply to that corporation, right? So not just within the state in which it is regulated, but within the United States. So we have in the United States a competitive system of corporate regulation, um, and that has led to really uh, innovative regulatory systems, Delaware uh, being the most famous. So Delaware has specialized courts where the judges actually understand business, okay? And so businesses like to be uh, incorporated in Delaware because they know that the judges there are responsive and understand business conditions. Uh, Wyoming has um, instituted kind of the first recognition of blockchains. And as, as you pointed out, the Catawba uh, Indian District, which I'm an advisor to, is looking to create more innovative and responsive regulatory systems for stable coins, for blockchains, for uh, DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations, and so forth. So this competitive federalism in the United States I think is uh, quite powerful. Yeah, it's quite powerful. Um, so that's interesting to hear that cities have potential in the United States again. What have you learned from Gurgaon, India? Gurgaon in India is a city which is uh, just outside uh, Delhi. And it's one of these amazing, like it's one of these cities in China, which 40 years ago, uh, 1990s and 1980s, was basically just farmland. Okay, and then suddenly sprung up in Gurgaon a private city, is a uh, a very large owner, and basically became the hub for corporations who wanted to move to India. They wanted to get a base in uh, India, and they were looking for a place 
where they would have a stable regulation under a entity which understood business. So we had essentially one large owner, like a private city. Gurgaon was essentially a private city. Private police force, uh, private um, uh, fire uh, services, um, private roads, okay? And incredibly successful. So amazing skyscrapers and, uh, you know, glass buildings and golf courses. A lot of businesses, in fact, did move uh, there. So it's become one of the most uh, popular places, one of the best places in India to live for somebody in the rising, you know, managerial uh, uh, class. And um, overall, it's run, you know, quite well, certainly better than most Indian cities. So the private city model worked really quite well. Not, however, perfectly. <laughs> Not, however, perfectly. And um, so my co-author, Shruti Rajagopolin, and I uh, investigated. And there were a set of problems which were essentially in these very large public goods, to produce these very large public goods. The main ones being like sewage and electricity. Okay. And what happened is we didn't have a, although it started out as a you know, single private owner, um, uh, we didn't have enough of an encompassing uh, owner to really handle these two big encompassing issues, sewage and electricity. What do I mean? Well, to have a sewage system, you've got to connect everything and make sense to connect everything and then put it to a sewage plant. Okay. So what was needed was a set of agreements among all of the skyscraper owners and so forth that we're going to connect to a sewage plant. And that really didn't happen. So kind of remarkably, what happens now is the sewage from these skyscrapers is collected in trucks and it's trucked off and, you know, sometimes dumped. <laughs> we don't want to talk about where it goes. Um, and same thing with electricity. So a, if you wanted a, to take advantage of economies of scale, you wanted a big electrical plant, and then uh, uh, it's delivered, you know, to all of these different uh, owners in, in the city. And there wasn't, they weren't able to get together. The, the transactions costs were too high to enable them to, to do that. Um, so what happens again is we have these skyscrapers, but uh, often they're run by a diesel generator. High polluting, not very efficient, okay? Um, so on the surface, everything looks very modern, like we would have in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, or something like that. But underneath the surface, uh, things are, don't work quite the way you would expect. You have sewage with trucks and diesel generators instead of a nuclear power plant, you know, which is 50 miles away and delivers the electricity. So the bottom line is that you really do need a very large or a large piece of uh, land um, to be owned by the same entity and to keep ownership um, in order to produce these public goods. Uh, so I think that, so Gurgaon is, shows you both the success of a uh, private city, uh, you know, private police force, private fire, fire department works very well, but they were not able to produce these large citywide public goods. Um, so, so I'm hoping that, you know, it is possible to do that. There's other cities in India. Uh, Jamshedpur is a steel city uh, put together by Tata, you know, many years ago. And it works very well, very well. It's large enough to be able to do some of this. Company town, steel town. 
Um, but I'm so I'm helping Prospera and uh, some of these other experiments in charter cities. Keep in mind that you really do need a a city is a dance between the bottom up and the top down. And the bottom up is fantastic, okay? But there are some issues where this bottom up development is, uh, it, it has difficulty uh, handling um, citywide public goods like sewage and electricity. So you need some top down, maybe some planning. Okay, here's where the roads are going to be, okay? Um, so kind of you reserve some areas. And then you let private development within that grid structure, within that structure, uh, take place. Here, we're going to produce the electricity. Here, we're going to produce the sewage. And uh, you're all going to be connected. Now go out and we're not going to tell you what to produce. That's bottom-up behavior. So it really is this dance between the top-down and the bottom-up. And you need to get both sets uh, right to take advantage of the benefits of both. Yeah, that's a fascinating learning, and I like the metaphor of a dance between uh, bottom up and top down. Same time, also wondering, like when it comes to electricity, can't you have that more like microgrid or small scale nuclear power or something like that? So it's really a technology input that's necessary to have things kind of more decentralized and more bottom up, right? Yes. Technology sometimes creates big economies of scale. And uh, where, uh, and sometimes it creates decentralization, right? Um, but you can't always count on a technology to be decentralized, right? So, you know, through much of the 20th century, the cheapest way by far to generate electricity was to have a very centralized, you know, set of dams, you know, the Hoover Dam and these nuclear power plants or coal plants and, you know, things like that, which is a centralized process with a, with a grid. And that was by far the cheapest way uh, to do that. The decentralized approach was much, just much more expensive, much, much more expensive. Now, sometimes, okay, uh, technology changes over time. And sometimes it's even, you know, directed technological change. And a decentralized approach became possible at a cheap enough rate that it was, it's able to overcome, you know, the centralized uh, approach. We can hope for that. but it may take a very long time, and I think you can't, you can't, you kind of always count on that. Um, so you do have to do the dance. You do have to do the dance. Not everything could be decentralized. Yeah, that's a super important insight for any new city developer. And also, if I may do my own summary or put a bit of a model on it, right? Because sometimes you do have these ready made solutions, like we know how to do sewage and electricity centrally, right? So there's a case to be made. You should do a top down, as you just said. Um, but the problem that you create with sort of these top down provided public goods is that you're locked into a technology. Yeah. Right? Because once you have it, it's very hard to change it after. So maybe the technology changes and there's more decentralized solutions that are more adaptive to change. Right. Or, you know, but you kind of have to take that risk. Maybe you're stuck with a bad solution for a long time until you get the technology to fix it. I'd more, much sympathize with erring on the side of decentralization because it leaves the process open again for creative destruction um, rather than sort of having top down solutions. But yeah, it's a dance, right? Because who wants to come to a city with a bad switch system? That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight. Another one um, is or what I'd like love to talk about is 
what I haven't seen discussed much, both in the um, sort of private cities community and when it comes to public goods funding, but also uh, people in the Web3 space care a lot about public goods funding in the crypto space, right? So yeah. you're building different goods on top. It's easier to tokenize things. So things are more liquid. So starting kind of to think about bottom-up solutions as well to fund these public goods. So can you talk about funding public goods and about dominant assurance contracts? Sure. Yeah, so um, the, the one way of thinking about um, Web3 and crypto and, and so forth is that they want to replace these uh, centralized, private, but centralized um, institutions, whether it be Facebook or Uber or something like that, with a protocol to get rid of platforms, okay, as a competitor to platforms, which is a company, right? And a company brings together, Uber brings together the drivers and the, uh, the customers, the people who want to who, who travel. Um, Airbnb brings together, you know, the home sellers, the home owners, and people who, who want to travel and so forth. So uh, these platforms, okay, now platforms are great, but you are turning over, as you know, a huge amount of power over to a centralized authority. So, uh, which is kind of, it, it could be worrying, right? So like Uber, like you think about a taxi system. I, I love Uber. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I think Uber is fantastic. I, I, uh, it's a great innovation. I use it all the time. Um, it's super convenient. It's fantastic. Okay. But there is something which is worrying is that no one could stop me from using a taxi right? Uh, and certainly no one could stop me from using a taxi like anywhere in the world, right? So, you know, if I go, if I'm in Mumbai, I could hail a taxi. If I'm in New York, I could hail a taxi. No one could stop me, right? Okay. But if Uber suddenly decides we don't like Alex Tabrock, we don't like his political views, they just have to write, you know, one line of code, you know, Alex Tabrock zeroed out, we're not taking his credit card. And I'm screwed. I, I can no longer access driving services in New York or in Mumbai, anywhere in the world, right? Because Uber is so so prevalent, you know. And I don't have there's not a lot of uh, uh, um, alternatives, right? You know, Lyft and things like that. But, but that I'm a bit skeptical about, right? Because yeah. as we know, sort of these natural monopolies are very hard to form in a competitive market, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if Uber really goes, it makes really bad decisions as to excluding like famed economists. Yes. And I'm sure there's <laughs> going to be like a taxi service that specializes in famed economists, right? <laughs> I'm not so sure. Maybe. But, well, let, let me change it. Let me change my scenario slightly. If the government says to Uber, we don't mm -hmm. like Alex Habrock, shut him down. Well, then, and then there's no competitor, right? And so it's, so it's possible, you know, and the Chinese government obviously is doing exa things exactly like that. But then right? the risk is not like Uber and these technology platforms. It's a quibble that I have with many people with three or Facebook or whatever. The problem is what the government does with it. That's the risk, right? Well, yeah. That yes, especially but applies to any technology, right? No, no, no. I don't think, I don't think it does apply to any technology because True. yeah, censorship resistant and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I, I mean, the, the platform provides the technology in which you can write somebody out with a database, uh, a link. So going back, so what is web three all about? Web three is all is changing platforms into protocols. Okay. So to say we're going to use a protocol, um, like the email protocol, 
which anybody can access and um, anybody can uh, then use, right? And so the the hope and the dream is to create open protocols where, which are, as you had pointed out, with these decentralized, you have new technologies, new ideas, new ways of doing, like the internet itself, right? So there's nobody in control of the internet. Anybody can put up a web page. So we might be able to create a protocol for drivers and people who want lifts, which anybody could uh, access. Lots of different companies could access that same protocol or a protocol for, you know, connecting people who have homes to rent with people who want to rent a house. Anybody could connect with these uh, protocols or a Facebook protocol, a Twitter protocol, um, a money protocol. So those, that's the idea. But the problem, as um, you had pointed out, is that how then does the protocol evolve over time? Okay. Um, nobody owns it. So that means there's not a huge, not as large an incentive to improve the protocol because if you make an improvement, well, anyone can access that improvement. So there's a free rider problem. Nobody wants to pay to improve the protocol. You know, there's that famous that cartoon uh, where you have these uh, uh, protocols and uh, yeah, it's sort of building on brick on brick and brick and brick, brick, brick. And the whole thing is founded upon this one guy in Iowa who is maintaining the public code. Right? Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a problem. So one thing which um, the Web3 protocols have had to try and deal with is how can we create public goods? Okay. How can we create a system where the protocol can be updated and improved uh, over, over time, even though it's open to everybody? Okay. Who is going to improve something which is, can't be captured, where the gains can't be captured? So some ways of doing that, you know, create a coin and then a bunch of the coin is allocated to a foundation. And you hope the foundation, you know, like an Isaac Eisenhower's foundation, will last for a long time and will uh, spend the money wisely. You know, that, of course, obviously has problems like, you know, the Ford Foundation, you know, became controlled by, you know, lefties, right? And started out doing some good stuff and then, you know, declines over time because the original founders are gone. And then you have rent seeking and people climb to the top and there's a pool of money and they grab all of the foundation. So was it that over time, any organization tends to become more left-wing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A conquest. I think that's Robert Conquest's yeah. uh, law. You know, that's exactly uh, right. So there's lots of experiments in trying to create methods to produce uh, public goods. Um, okay. One of my earlier or earliest papers, which was like pre-crypto, <laughs> pre-Web3, was creating these um, uh, uh, dominant assurance contracts. Uh, that's what I called them at the time because it was an assurance contract, um, much like uh, 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 crowd, uh, Kickstarter. Uh, this is before Kickstarter, but in Kickstarter, you have what's called an assurance contract, which means that you give money to fund you know, some public good um, or some new device, but they only take the money if enough funds have been raised to actually complete the project successfully. That's the idea. So you, you are assured that your money won't be used unless uh, the whole thing, the whole package will be successful, right? Okay, that's, the, uh, that's an assurance contract. A dominant assurance contract 
the Kickstarter, with the, right? Yeah, Kickstarter exactly is, mm-hmm. is an assurance contract. A dominant assurance contract is an improvement on this because the assurance contract, um, you might say, okay, well, uh, let's say I, I, I say I'm not going to give, okay? Well, if you know that I'm not going to give, it's an equilibrium for you not to give as well, okay? So the assurance contract is has multiple equilibria, and some of those equilibria involve, lots of them involve non-funding. So lots of kick, most Kickstarters fail. Uh, 70% of them fail, right? The dominant insurance contract changes this. And the way it works is pretty simple. Uh, another term for it is called refund bonuses, okay? And the idea is very, very simple. It's that if the contract fails, so if we don't reach the threshold, then every person who agreed to uh, donate, not only are they given their money back, but they're given back a refund bonus. Okay. Now let's go back to the situation where I'm not going to contribute. I say, I'm not going to contribute to this. Well, now you're going to say, hey, I want to contribute because I think this thing is not going to work, but then that means I'm going to get the refund bonus. So now you want to contribute. And of course, the logic is the same for me. So now uh, there is no equilibria under which the contract fails. Okay. Uh, Because if I think you're not going to contribute, I do want to contribute. So there's always an incentive to contribute. And if I think that you're going to contribute, well, I still want to contribute because then I want to at least um, get the public good produced, assuming that the public good has value. We do, we do have to assume that the, the ultimate thing this thing is going to create is, is worth something. If it's not worth something, then of course the contract may fail. Um, but if the public good is worth producing, then this dominant assurance contract or these refund bonuses can make that uh, happen. So I wrote that paper many years ago, and then the crypto guys kind of got interested in it. And so that got it a little more, little more attention than it originally had. And then more recently, some colleagues, uh, uh, Tim Kaysen and uh, Robertus Zabrikas, um, have been, along with myself, have been writing some papers testing this contract experimentally uh, in the lab. And we find, in fact, it does work. I mean, it doesn't work perfectly, you know, nothing works perfectly, but it doubles the success rate. So if you have a bunch of projects, um, which are decent projects, this will double the potential for success. And that's enough so that sometimes the contract will fail and then the entrepreneur will have to pay out these refund bonuses, right? But when the, since it, the contract doubles the number of successes, the profits on the successes are enough to pay for the refund bonuses on the failures. The refund bonuses don't even have to be that large. They just have to be enough to get people's, get people's attention. So this contract is a profitable way of producing uh, public goods. Excellent. How big should the markup for the refunds? Yeah, so... It's going to depend upon the context. Um, it could be like one way of thinking about it, like 5% of your donation. That might be a way of doing it. It could be it, it, different circumstances. It could be like $10 or $50. It's, it's going to depend upon yeah, the, the situation. It's just enough so that people say, oh, there's a chance for me to make some money here. If the contract fails, that's worthwhile doing, right? So just enough to get people's attention, um, then, then, it, then it can work. 
Yeah. I can't believe it's not used more widely because it's such a neat concept. Me neither. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, I take, um, uh, take some hope in, you know, when I published the entrepreneurial economics uh, book, um, uh, as I mentioned, like Robin Hanson's prediction markets, no one had heard of it then at all. Right. And today, um, they're not used as widely as I think they should be used, but lots of people know about the Hollywood stock exchange. Lots of people know that if you want to predict the outcome of the next election, you go to the Iowa political markets. They're all these predicted, these betting markets. So lots of people understand now that um, if you want to predict the outcome of an election, you know, Clinton versus Trump, then look at the market prices. Um, so prediction markets, I think, have become much better known. They still should be used more often. And maybe uh, refund bonuses or dominant assurance contracts, maybe it will become uh, more known in the future as well. Hopefully, while I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know about this concept um, until like a couple of days ago, um, which makes me wonder how much more is there that you, GMU, um, the econ professors have come up with this. <laughs> But anyway, um, so the reason I found out about it is, so I have to give a shout out here to Joseph McKinney from the Catapa Zone, actually. Uh. And he asked me to um, ask a question, how it could apply to digital jurisdictions like his. Actually, right. just gave me an idea what it could be interesting for is my industry, VC, and fundraising, right? So startups are often facing sort of the skepticism by early investors are they really going to be able to raise? No one wants to invest in a company that isn't able to successfully raise a big round, right? Same in a VC fund, sort of investors in my fund, sort of the early investors are sort of the biggest hurdle to get over, right? So kind of having this as a mechanism for assurance for early investors that could be really, really useful, but um, not sure which specific regulations would be in would be preventing this, but I'm pretty sure there are other regulations right. that are preventing this because VC funding and setup funding is very regulated. There's regulations when it comes to crowdfunding. Yes. There's all these, oh, you can't provide these brokerage services and you can't do general solicitation and this and that. So maybe that could be a good case that in the Catawba zone, we could write kind of laws that make it easier for to do these crowdfunding or crowdfinancing uh, mechanisms that could allow uh, dominant insurance contracts. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's another advantage of these refund bonuses, um, which my colleagues and I are working on now, actually, and that is that the signal quality, because if you have an entrepreneur who has a good project, they're much more willing to offer the refund bonuses than an entrepreneur who has a bad project, because if they have a bad project, then it's more likely to fail and the entrepreneur will have to pay out the refund bonuses. Well, if the project is good, the entrepreneur, like a warranty, can feel free to offer a really good warranty because they know it's not going to be used because the, the product is high quality. So if they know that their, their um, a product is high quality, they can offer refund bonuses because they're not going to have to pay them. <laughs> so um, we, we've been uh, yeah, working on an experimental paper showing this as well. So yeah, I agree. It's a part of decentralized finance and help to overcome the asymmetric information problem. When the, uh, the, when, when the project entrepreneur knows more about the quality than do the uh, investors, refund bonuses can be a good signal of that this is a high quality project and convey that information in a credible way to the investors.
Yeah. Increase this a bit the risk for entrepreneurs though, especially so if you're like a first time entrepreneur or don't have like much money to back it up, right. you know, that probably not going to help you, but you know, you and I don't have a problem with unlimited upside. Right. So. Right. So y- yeah, so there is some risk though. Of course, entrepreneurs face all kinds of risks. Right. They face the risk anyway. They face the risk <laughs> they, right they, now. They face huge right? risk anyway. Yes, it uh, makes it a bit easier for sort of experienced entrepreneurs, but it doesn't make it worse for the first time entrepreneur, right? If anything, yeah. it could even make it better. It provides the Exactly. I think if you look at the the system overall, this is a way of reducing risk because you're reducing some of this asymmetric information risk. You're reducing some of the funding risk. You're making it more likely to get investors and so forth. Though it does require some more upfront capital, but of course, so does the whole project, right? So, you know, that, you know, people have to give up uh, something. There are, there's, there's always risks. It's like moving to, to San Francisco, to moving to Silicon Valley, you know, and renting, you know, a, 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 a place of business, right? It's expensive, right? You know, that's a risk. It's very, very expensive, but you have to be, it helps to be in the Bay Area, you know, to raise venture capital. So this is another way in which it's going to help you to raise capital. But of course, there are some expenses as well, you know, but that, that is true of everything in uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that could be useful or aren't yet used enough, or especially in the context of like entrepreneurs and private cities? Yeah. So I think one thing to think about in the context of entrepreneurs and private cities is You've got to align incentives. Very, very important because especially if we're thinking about these charter cities like Prospera, things of that nature, how are you going to get the government uh, to go along um, with the charter city? So I think the the owners of the charter city have to think a lot about aligning the incentives of the elites and aligning the incentives of the government. And this is where you might want to create um, you know, shares in the uh, private uh, city, uh, maybe based upon a land tax, okay? Um, and some of those shares should be allocated to the government or the government should, you know, get uh, tax revenues on an ongoing basis, right? So it's gonna, it's really, really important to align the incentives. You want to always make it that the local government, which you need to get buy-in from, okay? Um, that they have a greater incentive to see the charter city be successful and ongoing than to expropriate it tomorrow, right? And so you want to get them um, involved in getting long-run incentives, uh, and that could come out of tax revenues uh, from the uh, charter city. Um, And a nice way of doing that is to have a land tax so that the more public goods are created, the Henry George kind of theorem, the more public goods are created, the greater the value of the land, which you can then recoup from a land tax. So a land tax gives the owners of the charter city an incentive to create public goods, you know, like sewage, like electricity, like the rule of law, like a good court system, like a good police system, because that means that people want to live there, people want to work there, that raises the value of the land. and then that value of the land is recouped in a tax to pay for the public goods. And then the government gets a chunk of that, gets a share of that. So 
you don't always want to think about it. the lesson here is that it's not simply laissez faire, let us do whatever we want. You want to get them, give them a cut of the action, okay, so that the incentives are aligned, so that everybody wants to create a long run prosperous, prosperous, prosperous city, okay, um, uh, and everyone's incentives are aligned. So just thinking about incentives is a big thing which economists do, mechanism design, getting everybody on board, you know. Should you pay people by the piece or should you pay them a salary? Should you give prizes? When do you give bonuses? All these kinds of things um, which exist between principals and agents, between employers and workers. You also want to think about them between the owners of the uh, charter city and the government which regulates them and the workers and businesses which come to the charter city. You got to get all those incentives aligned. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it also partly explains prosperous success thus far because it has a model like that where the tax mm. rep where tax revenue is shared with the Honduran government and they did a very good job of including local workers that are employed. Um, they bought land from owners that were there and involved them into the process. So I think that partly explains the success and it's a very important lesson. I'll speak more about that with one of the Prospera founders, Gabriel Delgado, very soon. Right. We'll how's soon how's your sewage? <laughs> um, the sewage right now, I mean, we're piggybacking off of what was there before, right? Yeah. Good. <laughs> so, and, you know, on the greenfield side, there's only this one um, building, right? So they see a co-working space. Yeah. How does the sewage system there work? I can ask. <laughs> <laughs> but Alex, this was so fascinating. I mean, what's great about um, this space that I'm in, what makes me so excited is that we can try out these ideas from... Um, people such as yourself and your colleagues at George Mason University from economists, mechanism design, some insurance contracts. I think we learned about that concept in this episode. That's something I'm very keen to bring to the attention of more people in the space that could solve some of the public goods problems that you raised. And we've been hearing from you that these public goods problems will do arise. So I think this was a very, very insightful episode and I think will be very positively received by my audience. So thanks so much, Alex, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.